it's interesting to think about it that way, that it's just so many things that are totally out of your control and you can be the most talented artist in the world and still see just as much failure as anybody else just because it's all based on, on circumstance. Hello and welcome to Beyond Networking, the show where we help you build a sustainable career in an unpredictable world. If you learn to weave a network of people who trust you, who feel heard, understood, and valued in your presence, there will always be someone willing to hire you, buy from you, or work with you. So, what are you waiting for? Let's go Beyond Networking. Well, hello, I'm Brian Miller, and if you're new here, I'm a former professional magician turned author, speaker, coach, and consultant on human connection. Since the pandemic shut down live events and conferences for the foreseeable future, I've been running virtual team-building workshops for organizations large and small, and consulting for small businesses, freelancers, and entrepreneurs on how to connect with clients and customers in the new world order. If you'd like to explore working together, head to brianmillerspeaks.com and click the appropriate link to reach out via email or set up a call. Today's guest is Michael Krauss. He's a Canadian playwright and actor who I met via the interwebs when we were just teenagers on magic forums. Yes, that's a real thing. Michael and I discussed the creative difference between acting for someone else and writing for actors how to draw on inspiration from outside your own field, the role of luck in creative endeavors and how to increase your odds of being lucky, building empathy into your business, and, of course, Michael shares his story of a chance encounter with lasting impact. This is a warm, wonderful conversation that I enjoyed just as much listening back as I did in the moment, and I really think you will, too. Head to the show notes on beyondnetworkingpodcast.com for related links to Michael's work, and to join our community email so you never have to check your podcast app for new episodes. Stick around to the end of this episode for my three biggest takeaways. And with that, here is Michael Cross. Okay, Michael Cross, thank you so much for being here. It's great to see you again. It's been ages. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's good to see you. Yeah, and you're you're up there in Canada, in Canada. I am. I'm in Hamilton, Ontario right now, where you're it's still Ham- kind of cold. <laughs> you're it's you know what? It's been cold here in Connecticut too cuz I'm pretty north in in the in the US and of course I'm from Buffalo, New York originally, so mm-hmm. I was I was right there uh, 20 minutes from the Canadian border. I used to tell people I I Buffalo, New York is a Canadian colony. And uh, I used to get people who occasionally would say, oh, I didn't I didn't know Canada still did that. And then I had to walk away. Um, right. So <laughs> <laughs> so let's uh, let's start here before we get into kind of how we know each other and your whole background, your story these days. If you're normally I ask if you're at a networking event, obviously, that's not happening in the moment that we're recording this. But if you meet someone virtually or otherwise for the first time and they say, hey, what do you do? What's your answer these days? My answer these days is I'm a playwright and theater artist and creative writer. Uh, playwright first. A playwright, a theater... Artist. Artist and... Mm-hmm. And a creative writer. And a creative writer. 
That's so many things to unpack in one <laughs> sentence. So when you I tell know. people that, when you tell people that, what is the first follow-up question you usually get? The first follow-up I usually get is usually money-related. They wonder how that sort of thing can even be a career, um, which is a fair question. I mean, it's it's one of those weird, mysterious art forms where they're like, I didn't even know playwrights were a thing anymore or something like that. So um, that's usually the question I get. And, you know, the, the answer is a multifaceted one. It comes down to just contracts and, and contacts and uh, who you meet and the opportunities you get just by searching out different sources of of productions or development support and stuff like that. So it comes from a whole bunch of places. See, that this is so interesting because when I, you know, I, I've followed your life practically, um, I mean, God, we must have met when you were, I mean, this is so goofy, when you were, what, 10 or something like that on the Probably, internet? Probably, yeah. Uh, which sounds really weird as I just said that out loud, but essentially... Uh, um, I'm just a couple of years older, but at the time it, it felt like a much bigger difference because me and my buddies that were into magic were probably 14 or 15 or something like that, maybe even 16. And, and we were getting online magic forums had started to become a thing and we mm -hmm. had found them, of course, and you were on one of those. And at the time, even three or four years difference at that age feels like a massive amount. Now, of course, it, it, it feels like nothing, no big deal. Um, yeah. So I've watched your life and uh, progress through magic, uh, but then at some point, I didn't even notice when it happened, all of a sudden you were a professional playwright. And I was just like, what? How did that? And I remember looking at that the same and having the same incredulous look on my face that people had when I used to tell them I was a professional magician, which is, well, how could you possibly? What does that mean? What's your day job? What's your real job? Right. Mm -hmm. And. And I, I had to catch myself from thinking, how could I didn't even know you could make a living as a playwright anymore. And then you go, well, of course you can, because for if for every Lin-Manuel Miranda before he was Lin-Manuel Miranda, he was just some kid trying to make it as a playwright. So there has to be a progression just like there is in any industry. So where where did that come from? And I'm especially curious, maybe start here. What does it mean to you to be a playwright? Let's start with that. What it means to be a, a playwright, that's a big question. Um, it, it, to me, it comes down to storytelling and especially storytelling that I haven't seen before in conventional like storytelling mediums like film and television and theater. Uh, so my specialty as a playwright is actually writing plays for people my age or even a bit younger. So my plays tend to skew for younger audiences, teenagers, young adults navigating contemporary Canadian life uh, because a lot of theater in Canada and the United States is more about uh, the adult experience or, or, and it's catering to an audience that is more adult or more senior. And there aren't a lot of authentic stories on stages that are about people sort of in their teens and twenties and around that area where they're just sort of in a, in a burgeoning state of life and, and trying to find their way in the world. So that's been my focus. And so it, it was me seeing a void in that and finding those stories very compelling, especially while I'm living them. Uh, and I was like, yeah, I want to, I want to tell these stories. So that's, I, I feel like there was so much good business advice there for people who have nothing to do with being a playwright or anything like that, which is uh, literally the the episode of the podcast that went up just a few days ago for this week uh, was all actually also from someone I used to know from Magic. Um, it's amazing how many guests I've had on that are not 
professional magicians that used to be professional magicians um, mm-hmm. and all the different places magic can take you. Um, and so we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. But uh, Norman Ng, uh, he was just talking about that on the podcast about how to adapt to anything. And essentially, his one piece of advice for young professionals and young people looking to make it in the world today is if you want to make it in business, whether for yourself or working for an organization, just find a need that no one has filled and fill it, right? Find something mm-hmm. people want that hasn't been served and serve it. And that's pretty much what it sounds like you you did. You you saw there are these stories that you care about that nobody is making plays about, that's no that nobody's exploring in in a in a fairly specific niche too. It was like Canadian kind of young adult and the culture like it was pretty specific. Um and it seems like from afar the response has been fantastic. You've had some real success with this. I have, yeah. It, I've been very lucky to um, to have a couple of things that really did help launch my career and bring it to where it is today. Uh, and I think it is it is because my my work, I guess, to a lot of people stands out because it is telling unique stories. I mean, I'm not the only playwright in Canada telling these stories, but uh, I am one of few. And and all the ones that do write these stories tell them from different perspectives and with different voices and in different ways. So I guess something about my particular approach or voice or perspective, uh, some people find compelling. So it's it's done pretty, pretty well for me. And it's, it's helped uh, me a lot in my career so far. Wow. Okay. So, so how then did you actually make that transition? I think... By and large, I'm, I don't know that people are as interested in hearing about how people made career transitions as some of us podcasters think they are uh, because it's such a common theme of these sorts of podcasts. But in this particular case, because I know that you are also, I mean, a relatively successful magician, although you didn't spend as much time as you could have pursuing that career, mm-hmm. and magic was – like it, that was that was your life. That was your passion, right? I mean, so like how – how did that transform? Was there an aha moment when you realized, I do want to pursue the arts, but it's not magic? I think the aha moment was just that, that, that I love performing and I love sharing an experience with people. Uh, and I was always seeking out ways of doing that. And magic is still part of my life. I mean, it's not it's not my professional pursuit, but I do still practice it. I still create stuff now and again. Uh, I still do the odd gig when it comes up. Uh, for the right thing. But for the most part, my pivot to theater was just out of, again, storytelling and wanting to connect with people. And so uh, moving from magician to playwright was less direct. It was actually sort of magician to actor to playwright. Uh, and I went to theater school to study theater performance and acting. Uh, and part of that program was learning how to uh, access your own voice and your own perspective on the world and the stories that you want to tell. So it was uh, partly about technique for an actor, but also partly about tapping into your creative voice and storytelling voice. Uh, so it was there that I discovered my voice as a playwright and the stories that mattered to me. And when I left school, I, I felt more of an urge to to pursue my path as a playwright than I did as an actor. And again, acting is still part of my life. When it uh, when the opportunity arises, I do do the occasional gig on stage. But for the most part, I, I transition pretty fully to, to writing plays. So it strikes me then that most kids, if they dream of being in the arts or in theater of some kind, they dream of being the lead, right? The one in the spotlight. That's it. I, I don't know. There's not that many kids that are like, someday I really hope to be behind the scenes and get no credit, 
right? Um, <laughs> right. Which is kind of, you know, because I, I ran sound for stage crew in high school. And so, like, actually, that is what I dreamed of doing. I, I actually, I wanted to be on stage as a magician, but I never imagined myself there in these other areas. And so there was this interesting disconnect that I loved being behind the scenes and creating the audio experience. And, of course, audio became a massive part of my life as a result. Um, mm-hmm. But what I'm curious about there is, you enjoy being an actor, but you obviously pursued playwriting as the primary, um, you know, the the primary force in your life. So is it the fact that as an actor, you're interpreting somebody else's perspective and as a playwright, you're the one actually inventing or creating it? Where Where's the, the difference there? Somehow, I think I found playwriting to be a more truthful outlet or one that I was able to access more vulnerably than acting. Uh, I mean, I I made really big strides as an actor when I was in theater school, but I left with more of a sense that the way I wanted to tell stories was from a written perspective rather than a performance perspective. Uh, And I mean, the the work behind being an actor is incredibly vulnerable and incredibly personal. And a lot of acting is about finding your own personal inroad to another person's story or experience. When you're interpreting a playwright's words, it's all about kind of bringing that out from yourself and your own experience in any way that that manifests. So um, that's where I got my first taste of that was in performing. But then when I left, I was I something about writing the stories uh, for other people to interpret f- for some reason was more compelling to me. And I think I, I heard enough from uh, in terms of feedback from my from my educators in school that playwriting was really something that I stood out in. And so that really made me shift my focus a bit and, and pivot and really think like, okay, like what kind of stories do I want to tell as a playwright? And, and does that excite me more than being an actor? And ultimately it, it kind of did. Yeah. Yeah. I get, I, 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 I get that. And um, I'm curious where some of your inspirations came from, because I think typically when people get asked about inspiration, they immediately go to people right within the field that they're being asked about. You know, you're a guitarist, tell me your inspirations. And they go, Joe Satriani, Eddie Van Halen, they instantly grab guitarists. But a uh, someone that we both uh, well, I don't know personally. I don't know if you know personally, but we both know well is is of course Teller of Penn and Teller, and he mm-hmm. wrote this magnificent letter that I think was actually to Brian Brushwood privately many many years ago that Brian made public with Teller's permission. I, I this is kind of a weird tangent, but it's coming back. Don't worry, it's coming back. So. He Teller had said something to a young Brian Brushwood, um, which was you should have inspiration from outside of your own your own medium that essentially Teller said he's a great magician. Teller said he's a great magician because he should have been a film editor. And if he's a great magician, it's because he should have been a film editor, right? In a different life, he would have been a film editor. And that's actually what makes him a great magician. So he draws inspiration mostly from great film editors and 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 writers of, of cinema as opposed to other magicians. I know for me personally, it's interesting because I've been I think I've mostly been such a successful speaker, coach and consultant because I draw from my previous career in magic. Um, and I think mm. that makes me a better speaker than I ever was a magician drawing from the magic inspiration. So what I'm curious is, I'd love to hear your inspirations within the theater world. I have a feeling Jason Robert Brown, uh, we have a mutual love of, is is up there. But I'm especially curious where you draw from outside of your immediate world of theater that brings in that brings in creativity for you. That's a very good question. And I have a very 
broad answer, but um, I, as a playwright, I'm most inspired by just the the civilians around me in a public space and sort of eavesdropping and being a fly on the wall for different conversations and different experiences. And I I really quickly fell in love with, and I've always been in love with, uh, the sort of natural colloquial poetry of, of human speech and the way we communicate and the flawed ways we communicate, because so few of us are perfect speakers or perfect communicators uh, at the best of times. So I love watching people try to communicate their thoughts and the ways that people paint pictures with their thoughts uh, and and try to try to explain or explore big ideas with with their relatively limited vocabulary <laughs> uh, and their way of interpreting the world around them. So I really find that fascinating. And that's what I try to capture in the language of, of the way I write. Um, and I feel like a lot of that came out of when I was in theater school and being in a room of people all day that were encouraged and and sort of required to articulate these unarticulatable things <laughs> where we're talking about the way that like the technique affects our bodies and, and our voices and our emotional centers, our psychological centers. And, and people would use like very image based language to talk about those things or they would just stumble through and try to find the, the best word or facsimile of the word to to describe it. And I really, really love listening to that. And I always love listening to that. And I think there's so much tension in it, like just like a natural dramatic tension in listening to people try to communicate idea and maybe not quite doing it. Uh, and I just find it very, very poetic in a very unconventional way. So that's sort of my long form answer to that. And it's just that people around me. Yeah. That that's a great answer. And it makes me think of so many different things uh, on, on one hand, literally as a human connection specialist, which is this weird career I carved out for myself that I invented for my own doing, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, I mean, it, basically a subset of communication, you know, mm-hmm. coaching. Um, I spend most of my time dealing with everything you just said, which is the imperfect ways that people desperately try to get their ideas across and fail. And what's interesting is that on your end of things, you get to kind of exploit that failure for dramatic effect and write stories around it and see what happens when those failures occur. And on the other hand, in the real world, I'm desperately trying to help people be more clear in their language and in their speech to avoid those miscommunications, to work more effectively and make better connections. Um, yes. But this also makes me think of because my academic background is is philosophy. That's what I was all set to start a Ph.D. in and decided at the last hour, no card tricks instead. Um, but I was all set to do a philosophy PhD in philosophy of language. That was my, which is hysterical when you realize that 10 years later, my career came back from actually I'll abandon ship on philosophy of language, go do card tricks for a living and somehow ended up now being a communication specialist, which is <laughs> the weirdest path to, to getting there. The least obvious path you could have taken. Mm-hmm. Um, I loved studying Wittgenstein from uh, basically an early 20th century philosopher and uh, semanticist. And one thing that he said over and over is philosophy is a bewitchment of our intelligence by means of language. Philosophy is a bewitchment of our intelligence by means of language. And what he meant was there are actually no real philosophical problems. All of the problems we think we have in philosophy for thousands of years, the reason they don't get solved is because it's just humans misusing language and that if you just let humans do their own thing and you don't get philosophers involved, they're fine. They figure it out. They manage to communicate. It doesn't work and it's weird and imperfect, but 
life works, communication works. It's only when philosophers come in and insert themselves into it that we actually, we create the problems that we then have trouble solving. Um, mm-hmm. which, which, is, which is what I was thinking about as you were describing that kind of seeing the imperfection play out in, uh, in the real world. Yeah, I love that idea. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's 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 very strange. Uh, he actually argued for philosophical therapy. He believed we should only do philosophy insofar as it relieves us of the desire to do more philosophy. So, uh, <laughs> as you can imagine, philosophers didn't like him very much. Um, no. <laughs> so, so let me ask you: apart from the the uh, how do you get paid? How do you make a living from this? Um, what are the other, what are the big misconceptions about working in theater, being a playwright, um, being a creative, like that's become like its own noun. You're a creative now. I'm a creative. What, mm-hmm. the, what are the big misconceptions about that? The big misconceptions, I think one that still is quite pervasive is that uh, it's easy. <laughs> it's the farthest thing <laughs> from easy. Like it's just, I, I still hear that. And I, I mean, that it, again, like our, our, my field is so mystifying to people. Um, but once you're in it, do you realize like the, the immense amounts of, of rigor physically and emotionally and psychologically that you need to be able to make it in this business and also the capacity for empathy that you need where theater is all about empathy. And I mean, I've, I was in a rehearsal hall for a play of mine last year. And I was lucky enough to sit in as a playwright. Not often do playwrights actually sit in rehearsals for their own shows. Uh, and I, you know, theoretically did nothing. I just sat there and watched. But I would leave each rehearsal just totally exhausted because I'm in a room full of all of these these bodies and, and hearts and minds that are just like going to the limits and pushing themselves all day long. And the 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 energetic space of that room was enough to exhaust me. So it's an incredibly taxing art form. Uh, which is especially remarkable considering just how generally speaking underfunded theater is and how few of us actually do make a full living doing it. I mean, even even me, who's had a fair bit of success as a playwright, I don't make my full living just writing plays off of productions. I've I've been very lucky and I'm luckier than a lot of a lot of playwrights are. But uh, I still do have other sources of income to fill in the gaps. And yet I still keep going back. Sure. So since you brought up the the uh, you brought up the fact that you've been lucky although not lucky enough to be a full-time playwright, that you're somewhere in the middle of luck. Um, Mm -hmm. Luck is, to all my listeners, something that I've been talking about and exploring on the podcast uh, for over a year. Uh, Most people know at this point that I'm working on my, I'm in the middle of work, writing my second book, The Follow-Up to Three New People, which is all about the role of luck in success. That is what my second book is about. And so I've been asking all kinds of people this question. So I don't need to ask you, do you feel like you've been lucky? Because you just answered that. But what is luck to you? I think luck to me is all, it's, it's sort of um, an amalgam of, of circumstance and, and, uh, and networking and talent. It's a whole bunch of things in one. Uh, but I find that, um, you know, as, as much as I do think I'm, I'm a talented theater artist and I recognize my strengths and my weaknesses as an artist, uh, I also recognize that a lot of the things that have happened in my career were just like uh, the the perfect sort of collage or, or mix of, of circumstances and people. And um, like, for instance, like submitting a play for consideration for an award or something, the, the people on the jury could make or break whether or not your play actually wins the award. So, mm-hmm. I mean, any, any playwriting award I've won, it's like this, this happened because of these people. It happened because of the zeitgeist, what's going on in the world right now. 
And there are so many factors in there that I'm like totally out of control uh, from. So it was it's interesting to think about it that way, that it's just so many things that are totally out of your control. And you can be the most talented artist in the world and still see just as much failure as anybody else, just because it's all based on on circumstance. I, you know, I, I give this example all the time to people who push back and they say, no, you know, there's such a especially like on Instagram and social these days, there's such this hashtag hustle culture idea that if you just work hard enough for long enough, you will be successful. And if you're not successful, it's just that you haven't worked hard enough or you haven't worked long enough yet, which is such a toxic idea because there's not, I don't know one successful person that that got there without the element of luck at some point, if not many times. My career is riddled with luck from privilege of birth, right? white male in America, upper middle class family, like can't even, I mean, that in and of itself was enough, right? Yeah. But then on top of that, on top of that, sitting next to the right person on a plane, you know, um, many different times and having that conversation to just, like you said, the zeitgeist, um, my TEDx talk, I didn't know when I gave that talk that six months later or three months later even, the world was going to take this weird left turn into feeling really divisive and really disconnected. When I gave that talk, I just was giving a talk about connection because that's what made sense to me as a magician. I had no idea that the entire zeitgeist of the world was going to steer into my talk. So it went viral, three million views, and I'm the one that got the chance to build this weird career for myself on a global scale, right? There's so many aspects of that. Um, Mm -hmm. But what I'm really curious about, what I'm exploring in the book, and I'd love your opinion on or your advice about is, do you believe it's possible to increase your odds of being lucky? Uh, Yes, just by virtue of putting yourself out there. I don't Mm -hmm. think that there are going to be as many opportunities for you to actually strike that luck if your work isn't visible and if you're not putting it out there, meeting the right people and just, uh, I guess, in some way making a name for yourself. So, I mean, I... Even though I do feel lucky with a lot of the career moves that I've made, uh, I can still attribute pretty much all of them to the fact that I'm I'm very vocal about what's going on in my process. My work is out there. Uh, I I continue like on my social media. There's an ongoing sort of dialogue with the people that follow me of of what I'm up to uh, and the kind of work that's going on. So it's it's I think to a certain degree, yes, like you can control uh, a little bit of of how that luck hits you. Yeah, you can make it. That's my instinct is is you can there's a bunch of things in common with all the people that have these luck stories, these stories of of luck and chance encounters that really changed their life is that they weren't just sitting in their living room hoping for that luck to hit. Right. They were always out there somewhere. They always struck up a conversation. They were oh, there's always something, some action involved, um, you know, some actual effort involved in 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 that moment and you could do that forever and never have the lucky moment right mm-hmm. but i guarantee you if you don't do those things you won't have the lucky moment right the guarantee is yeah. if you don't do them you won't have it if you do Absolutely. do all of them all the time there's no guarantee you will have it but there's a chance you will so yes so let's steer right in then to to the chance encounter story that's what everybody comes on here to tell to talk about um do you have a, a good story for us about a chance encounter personally or professionally uh, that really was impactful to you and not necessarily the thing that you would tell if you were on Letterman? Oh, boy, I just dated myself. He's not even on. <laughs> no one's on anymore. 
No. Do you have a story of a chance encounter? <laughs> I do. Um, so my chance encounter, it actually spans a couple of years. And it is the encounter that sort of moved me from uh, producing, self-producing my own plays at fringe festivals into my first professional world premiere, which happened last year around this time in the spring. Uh, so basically it, it all came together with, uh, it all came together with, with multiple people and multiple, uh, multiple interactions and sort of a domino effect of that. So, uh, I can trace it back to around 2016 where I was working on a play at the Hamilton Fringe Festival. So each year I would uh, put up these shows at the Fringe Festival, gather a gang of actors together to do these shows and uh, produce it and essentially invite industry people to come see them. So it was my way of sort of showcasing my work uh, to the theater industry. Uh, now, I don't know if, if people know too much about Hamilton, but Hamilton is sort of a hop, skip and jump away from Toronto, which is basically the epicenter of theater uh, in Canada. It's essentially our New York City. So um, by by being in Hamilton, in some ways, the proximity is nice, but in other ways, it's a bit of a detriment uh, because the Hamilton Fringe Festival happens the week following the Toronto Fringe Festival. And so a lot of theater makers and a lot of industry folk that go and see shows have already gone to see dozens and dozens in Toronto uh, where they're trying to find the next big artist or the next big show. And then they're sort of burned out and they don't want to come and see a show in Hamilton that may or may not be any good uh, by an artist they've never heard of before. So I didn't have that much success in actually getting industry people to come and see my shows. I'd invite a whole list of them every single time and maybe maybe one or maybe none would end up coming. And I, I did form some great relationships there. But um, so it, it but by doing that, I actually helped my my world premiere, my first professional world premiere along in a uh, unconventional way. Uh, in an indirect way, because one of the actors that was in the show I was doing in 2016, her friend came to see the show and she happened to be working in a ensemble of actors out in a town called St. Catharines near here. Uh, and the ensemble was called Twitches and Niches Theater. And they were sort of a small professional collective of physical theater artists, about half a dozen or so, who would collectively create shows. They were all writing together and devising together. And they were these very highly physical, highly political and highly socially conscious shows. And so uh, the artistic director of that company was seeking out a, a playwright sort of from the region uh, that they wanted to work with. They wanted to bring an outside playwright into their process and experiment with that. And the friend of the actor who was in my show uh, sort of dropped my name because she saw the show and she really responded to it and, and responded to my work. So I ended up meeting this person. His name's Colin, who dropped me a random Facebook message one day uh, and, and it was this big, long, sprawling essay of a message and basically inviting me to come work with them and to, to work on this project. They had a vague idea for something and they wanted to explore the possibilities of that with an outside voice. So I was working with them in that capacity. They would drop me little bits of seed money here and there as I was working. Uh, and it was a very slow, gradual sort of development process. And around that same time was I, I was working on a play of mine called The Team. And I had written a first draft. And The Team is a play about uh, the senior high school students uh, in a senior girls basketball team and their final season together. And so I was working on that. And I had written a first draft and felt really, really good about it, unusually good about it for my work at such an early stage. So I guess just based on my own my own naivete, I ended up submitting it to one of the, the biggest awards for Canadian playwrights in, in Canada, which is called the Vodin Prize. 
uh, and it's awarded every two years and they give it to one Canadian play. Uh, and so I just sent the script in and kind of forgot about it. And about a year later, while I was working with Twitches and Itches and on a couple of other things, I was in a cafe and got a phone call from uh, Queen's University, who administers the award, telling me that I had been chosen to to receive it. And my play had won the Bowdoin Prize for 2017, which was one of like the highlights of my life was sitting in that cafe and getting that phone call. It was still unbelievable. It was just incredible. Uh, and so that that really opened up a lot of doors. And because of that award, that play got on a lot of people's radar in a way it might not have otherwise uh, because of it was such a big honor. And uh, the artistic director, Colin, of Twitches and Itches Theatre ended up uh, hearing about this. And he had asked if he could read a copy, which I thought, oh, he's just curious to read the play. So I sent him a copy of the play and then again forgot about it. It was a few months after that. Uh, that Colin was announced as the incoming artistic director of a larger professional theater company in St. Catharines called Essential Collective Theater. And I saw that announcement. I went, huh, okay. And I, I remembered that I had sent him my play a couple of months ago. And I was like, was that, did he know he was going to be AD at that point? Uh, and again, just sort of forgot about it. And then a few months after that, he phones me. I'm on a, on a go bus into Toronto to see a show actually. And he phones me and uh, offers it a spot in his inaugural season with ECT. So it was this amazing kind of domino effect, and it led to my very first professional world premiere that ended up being a co-production between that company and uh, a company in my hometown, Theater Aquarius. So it was the, the perfect perfect storm of everything happening all at once. Wow. That, that is, that, right? That series of events is why I run this podcast. This, that is, there's so many steps and stages to that and, and so much time. And I, and I, and I always mm -hmm. think that's the thing missing when most people look at someone who's been successful is the amount of time it takes, right? That old, you know, it takes 10 years to become an overnight success, you know, that whole thing. There was a lot of time between the first moment of the 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 first point of that story and the and the big punchline, right? I mean, in terms of like year, what what was what was it all in? Two years worth? Yeah, I uh, I love that. So so where did that actually springboard you to then? So like you mentioned that you got the you know obviously you got a lot of attention for that. What were you actually able to? Because that was what, back in 2017, where like three years later, what's been going on since then? Where has that led uh, since? Uh, I think it's it sort of generally legitimized me as yeah. as a playwright to take yeah. seriously. Just having that happen. Um, and because there's, uh, I think in any theater community, there's always an oversaturation of artists. And there are a lot of people out there making work. Uh, and there aren't that many people of that many people who get to pursue it in a professional capacity. Um, and, you know, often to no fault of their own, of course. And it's it's never based solely on talent, as we've talked about. There's a lot of luck involved. Uh, but I think winning the award and then having that sort of springboard into uh, a first professional production sort of was my arrival into the professional theater community in that way. And it was like, OK, like this is this is someone to take seriously. This is someone who's who's making work that um, that. Uh, speaks to something in, in Canada that maybe isn't being spoken to in, in the fullest way by other writers and other voices. So um, I think, yeah, in a big way, it just meant that it opened up a lot of opportunities. And it means that I think I'm on a lot more people's radar than I was before. And I think a lot more people are tracking 
my career and what I'm working on. And so it, it really, it helped open a lot of doors. That's great. So I, I want to circle back to something we danced around in the first half of the episode. And, and now I feel like it really makes sense to come back to that a little bit more, which is the idea of, of connection, right? Because you're just telling your chance encounter stories. A lot of different people you had to make meaningful, genuine connections with along the way in terms of the offstage part of your career. Mm-hmm. Um, as a writer, as a playwright, and as an actor, connection is the whole game, right? You have to find a way to connect with the audience. Now, what's interesting is it's very different for an actor versus the writer, an actor gets in real time to play, to see the audience, see how they're reacting and modify their tone or modify, right? Because even though I, I know I'm actually one of the misconceptions I'm pretty sure happens with theater is that, well, it's it's scripted. They don't go off script. So it's the same show every night. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, the words are the same every night, but it could be a very different show. Like you could see, right? I'm wearing the Ham- my Hamilton hoodie for this. You could see Hamilton two nights in a row and with the exact same actors and the exact same words script. And the first night be very sympathetic to Burr and the next night think he's a villain, right? Yeah. I mean, depending on the, the tone uh, that they play at that night. So I wonder, as a writer where you can't play off the live audience. You're, you're, you're relying on the actors to do that later. How do you write something that's going to connect with the audience? It's a great question. Um, it's a complex question. I, I think it just comes I, I down want, to... I, I want it in a tweet. I want the okay. answer to that in a tweet, and I'm going to sell be, it. I'm going to sell I'll it tomorrow. I'll be as succinct <laughs> as possible. Amazing. Perfect. Um, uh, I uh, To me, it's sort of... Uh, it sounds again very general and very nebulous, but just writing from a place of truth mm-hmm. and and following those instincts and I think that that's the mark of someone who 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 knows how to tell a story and and who knows how to be a playwright is that they have an access point they have an intuition about what is true and what isn't so I think that might be one of my most valued skill sets and and attributes as a playwright is that I have a very good intuition for what feels true in the work and what feels and what doesn't feel true in the work. And what I love about that too, is that it, um, that truth can mean so many things to mean to so many people, the truth that I see when I'm writing the play and the truth that I, that I put in the play, the actors, if, if I've done a good job of it, the actors will find it, but they'll also find their own sort of sub truths or, or their own branches from that. Right. So, um, when I when I saw the team go up with this with this amazing cast last year, it was such a different experience watching actors interpret it because they got to the heart of the play and they every beat in it they they their instincts were dead on, but the interpretation of those instincts was so different than I ever envisioned it, and the play eventually became so different than I ever envisioned it, and I think part of that too comes from the fact that I was writing truths that were in a way outside of my experience because the play is about five young women and I am not a young woman. So <laughs> there was a learning curve there. And there was also, um, there, there was, a, it was a very careful, very deliberate, very open hearted process to write a play like that. Uh, and then it was amazing to watch people who have actually lived the experiences of the characters in this play, interpret them and the intensity that that brought to it and the intense drama that it brought to it. And it wasn't until we got in the room with that play that I realized I'd written a tragedy and I didn't think I had. 
it was amazing to watch them and like the emotional depths that they found that were still very true, but they were able to go all the way down here and I was all the way sort of up here. So uh, they, the, the depths that they found in the text that I had no access point to as someone outside that experience was amazing to watch. Wow. That, that makes me think of one of my biggest pet peeves, which is I, this is going to, don't worry, it's coming back around. I, okay. I that's, that's how I get everywhere. So yeah. we're going to go, that my, that's what my career did. And that's how I tell stories too and connect the dots. So I love Shark Tank. I watch this show, love Shark Tank. It's ridiculous, no doubt, but it's mm-hmm. great, right? The show, it's a reality show f- for, uh, they'll have four or five, whatever it is, um, really, really wealthy, super millionaire, billionaire people, Mark Cuban's on there and whatever. And they hear pitches from aspiring, you know, entrepreneurs and they decide apparently with their own money. So the show says with their own money, they decide if they're going to invest, um, you know, uh, in in these these entrepreneurs. And one of the most common things I see happen on this show, and it's my biggest pet peeve, is these people worth $300, $400 million, a billion dollars, where they'll say, you know what, I think it sounds like a great idea, but it's about golf and I don't like golf, so I'm out. I'm not going to invest. And I've always thought to myself, how in the world did you manage to get that successful without the ability to empathize, right? Mm -hmm. Because to me, the heart of being in business is the ability to say, you know what? I see the value in that idea. I wouldn't be the consumer, but that's okay. I don't have to be the person that that idea is for. I'm going to invest because I see the value of that idea and who it's for. And where we're coming back to here is that as you were describing that, you were really saying, you know, like you said, you're not a young girl. You were writing something that ended up striking truth because you didn't have to write the play for you. It didn't have to be about you or for you, but you were able mm-hmm. to find something deep within by considering other people's perspectives and other people's backgrounds and beliefs and things they might want or need that are not what you want or need. Um, and that is a that is a difficult thing to do. Tactical empathy is really hard. Mm-hmm. How did you learn how to do that? Uh, oh, a lot of patience and a lot of a lot of humility too. Um, I mean, the the most important voices because, of course, a play before it hits the stage, it usually undergoes years and years of development. And the team had about a three year track to from page to stage, which is actually quite short uh, mm-hmm. compared to a lot of others. But uh, in that process, there were always actors involved, and there were people that would do developmental readings and workshops, and of course. Um, those, those actors were, were female identifying performers and watching them and listening to them and listening to their feedback and really taking it to heart and not getting defensive and, and letting them feel the permission to, to call me on anything that didn't ring true was a big part of that because I also presented it to them in the most humble way possible, which is, I mean, this has nothing to do with me. This is not a play about my experience. Um, but I wanted to represent it as truthfully as possible. So collaboration was a big part of that. And the play would not be where it is or not tell the story in the way that it's telling it and with the amount of truth that it's telling it without the people that influenced it along the way and the voices from that experience that influenced it along the way. So collaboration was the biggest thing. Absolutely. That's a great answer. Um, I, I'm going to uh, bring this in towards the end here before I kind of ask you a, um, a final question or two. 
where do you want people to go find you or find your work? And we'll have all the links in the show notes, obviously. But uh, where do you want people to find you immediately? They just heard this. Stick around, everybody, for my for my outro. But then where do you want them to go? Sure. I have a website. It's uh, michaelcrossworks.com, K-R-A-S and M-I-C-H-A-E-L. Uh, and that's where you've, there's a portfolio of my work there. There are a couple of work samples of mine that you can read. And it's kind of just a portfolio of my my career as a theater artist. So my whole my whole life's work so far is up on that website. If you want to check out what I the kind of stuff I do. Great. Fantastic. And it's occurring to me now that uh, I have a very American pronunciation of your name. Is it cross? <laughs> it's it's sort of cross. A lot of people say crass or some variation. I'm not too picky with it. I think <laughs> even in my family, there's a there's a division on how it's pronounced. But uh, I've always said cross. So that's that's, that's kind funny. of what I've been going just, with. As you said that, I was like, oh, I'm an American. Um, yeah, so, <laughs> that's a that's a the the very harsh pronunciation is a is a stereotypical thing that we do. That and assuming right. everyone should speak English everywhere in the world, even in their own country. Anyway, so mm-hmm. um, okay, two last quick questions. First one is, if you were to offer one piece of advice right now to a young person or a young professional looking to build a sustainable career in an in- increasingly unpredictable world. This is a question I used to ask before the current situation we're in, in a world yeah. that is increasingly unpredictable and uncertain. What one piece of advice would you give a young person? Like there are students graduating college right now, this week in the middle of this. In fact, one of them is my little sister. We have a big age gap. She graduated college last week. Wow. What do you tell someone like that? Um, meet people any way you can. All, all the people, like do your research, figure out the the people whose whose work you align with, whose principles you align with, whose approach to their practice you align with, and take them for coffee. Ask to pick their brain. Uh, be respectful of their time and uh, sort of always keep in mind maybe what's in it for them when you go have a conversation. But the only way that you're going to make those those connections is by meeting people. And the only way you're going to to find your career is by building relationships with the people who are already in the industry, who can then one day extend an arm and say, hey, I've got this thing going on. I thought of you, your work, your style, you would be perfect for this. Will you come and do it? And that's in my in my mind for theater specifically, the only way that you're ever going to find a career uh, unless you completely build it yourself from the ground up. But uh, it's important. Theater is all about community. So embrace that community. Don't be afraid of it. And and just get in there and, and meet people. Great. I, I want to especially solo in on the fact that you you threw in there almost as an afterthought, but I think it's part of the whole thing, which is mm-hmm. make sure you're think, thinking about what's in it for them, right? Because yes. I'm sure you, I, I get these all the time. Anybody who's been relatively public or relatively successful, even if it's not, quote, full time, the way that, that, that you've said, I'm sure you get a lot of emails and messages from aspiring playwrights that have seen you've somehow managed to make it and everyone wants to pick your brain. They all want your time. And you, you, no matter how generous a person is, they just don't have the time to just give constantly. And so for me... I get a lot of those messages from aspiring magicians, aspiring speakers, all this stuff. And the ones I respond to and really give them my time and give them whatever knowledge or advice I have to offer are the ones who've somehow managed to offer me something before they asked for anything, right? Mm-hmm. It's just because you need a way to sift through if you know if you get 30 requests a week 
to pick your brain. You can't, you just can't say yes. And what you don't want to do mm-hmm. is have someone just say no, just because they say no to everything. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, and if you're going for coffee, make sure it's virtual coffee right now. So exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> don't you, just, I know we have all these like colloquial colloquialisms. Whoa, that's a word I wasn't expecting uh, <laughs> that, that we've just like forgotten. Don't make sense at this current moment. Uh, yeah. Like, yeah, go for coffee. Oh no, don't, don't go for coffee. Um, exactly. So, so last question, this is a brand new final question that I'm only using, uh, ever since about March 12th, 2020, awesome. which is, uh, what are you most grateful for today? I am most grateful for my my creative voice and my creative inspiration. I think it's a really tough time for everybody right now. And I've been finding a lot of solace and fulfillment in my ability to create. And it doesn't always come. I feel like there are days where I, I just am not in a space to create something. But when it does come, it's a great way of channeling what I'm feeling about the current moment into something and to making use of my time in a way that's productive. And so, yeah, that's sort of what I'm grateful for right now is, is that and, and living with a roommate. So I'm not totally alone. I'm also <laughs> grateful for that. Yeah. I'm grateful for my wife. Um, mm-hmm. so, uh, and that we like each other. I mean, yes. obviously we love each other, but we also like each other and that's really helpful right now. So important. Um, <laughs> so, you know, what's so funny. I was just going to let you go with that last question, but you said something that makes me want to ask one more quick thing, which is go for it. You talked about the, um, not every day does the creative inspiration strike, but when it does, I'm grateful for it. I hear a lot of very different things from different artists when they're asked about uh, the creative process. Some of them say, I write every day from 9 to 10 a.m. or 1 to 3 p.m. And no matter whether I feel inspired or not, I write every day. And that's how I get my work done because I'm a professional, damn it. And that's what professionals do. And other Mm -hmm. people who are just as successful in different ways say, Nope. I, if I got nothing, I got nothing. I wait for the inspiration to hit me and I can't force myself to do creative work. Where do you fall down on that? I'm sort of the latter. I, I, I feel as though I'm in a specific headspace when I'm able to create and able to create at my fullest potential. And I'm also, I mean, one of the detriments of, of my, of my creative spirit is that I have a very hard time making bad work at the first go, which is mm-hmm. not the easiest thing to reckon with, because, of course, you sort of have to let it be bad to a certain degree. But I have a tough time with that. And oftentimes I might write a scene. And before I go on to the next scene, I want to just like get that scene so perfect the first time. And it can really be a detriment to my process sometimes. But mm-hmm. I mean, at the same time, I also know that there are certain days where if I don't feel that I'm in the right headspace or have the right playful spirit, it's kind of a playful, a playful fun place that I come from when I'm when I'm writing a play, even if the thing I'm writing is not necessarily a playful quote unquote story, um, then I I just can't I can't do it because I know that what I'm producing won't just be bad. It just doesn't feel like me. It doesn't feel like my voice. It doesn't feel like it's anywhere attached to the way that I like to write. So it's less about the quality of it and just more. Is it attached to to the part of me that I think makes my playwriting so distinctive and unique and and good and and affecting. Great. Well, Michael, thank you so much for spending some time with me. Uh, This has been, uh, I have never had a playwright or anybody, in in, in spite of the fact that a lot of my family is in theater and my my first cousin who I'm I'm very close with is a theater. Um, uh, she's uh, she's worked behind the scenes. She's worked in front of the the camera. She's done everything over the years. Um, she's a director mostly these days. 
um, and a full-time professional. Um, I've never had anybody on to have this kind of a conversation. So I really, really enjoyed this. Uh, thank you for this. And yeah, I, I look forward to, to seeing how, how everything goes. And I can't wait till we can all get back out there and start experiencing live theater and live entertainment again, because I think the whole world just realized that uh, it's more important than they thought it was. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's definitely people are craving live experiences and I personally can't wait to get back there either. It's, it's something I feel missing in a big, big way. And it's in a way that Netflix just doesn't fulfill, like being in a live space, like nothing will ever, ever replace that. You can't, it's not possible. I hear you. All right. Well, thank you so much for this. We'll uh, we'll sign off here. This was great. Thank you so much. You know what I love about Michael Cross? How articulate he is about the creative process. There are a lot of brilliant creatives, but very few who can describe their work or their process with such eloquence. So here are my biggest takeaways from our conversation. First, success is most easily found by serving an underserved market or population. Michael realized not many playwrights were portraying the teen and young adult experience in Canada. By creating in that space, he gave a voice to a group of people who yearned to see their perspective play out on stage. Second, there's beauty in imperfection. I'm reminded of the first time I saw Bon Jovi live in concert. I was 17 and very excited. What's most memorable about the concert is how perfect they were. It was a note-for-note recreation of the album. Now, that says something extraordinary about the player's musicianship, but as an audience, it was kind of boring. I could have just stayed home and listened to the album. Meanwhile, one of my most memorable experiences is seeing legendary comedian Brian Regan completely bomb a new joke. There was something so exciting and so human and humanizing about it. He, of course, turned the joke's failure into a side-splitting piece of improv about his own mental process while the joke was bombing, and, and that I will never forget. And finally, Michael reminded us of the very ethos on which this podcast was founded. If you're after success in life or business, whatever that means to you, you need to be in the world, colliding with new people and new ideas. Talk about your ideas. Ask people about theirs. Engage with the world in a meaningful way, and sooner or later, things will probably shift in your favor. Head to the show notes on beyondnetworkingpodcast.com for Michael's website and related links. This podcast is and will always remain ad and sponsor free, but there are still a bunch of ways you can support us at no cost to you. For instance, you can leave a rating and review on Apple. You can subscribe to the community email list on beyondnetworkingpodcast.com so you never miss an episode. And most importantly, you can share this or any episode with a friend or colleague who would also get value the way that you have. Remember to use hashtag beyondnetworking on social media so we can find you and thank you. That said, my name's Brian Miller. This is Beyond Networking, and we'll see you next time. (music) 